Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. All right, good morning, good afternoon. We've been going through the book of 2 Timothy, and we have come to the third chapter in our series, um, continuing in DEFCON 1 which basically means to defend and contend um, for the faith. And as we know, when Paul wrote this book to Timothy, he was in prison. Um, It was more or less his last letters to to his protege, Timothy. So it's a book about legacy. It's basically passing on the baton of of the gospel. Um, And Timothy received it as such. He received it as words from a dying man. Um, Imagine the kind of um, mind frame, mindset you would get if the general is giving you his last march, marching orders while he's about to die. And this is what Paul is doing to Timothy. So in the first chapter, um, Paul urged Timothy not to be ashamed of him or the gospel or to be ashamed of his chains. In the second chapter, he's urged him um, in a sense to, to aim only for God's approval. And now we'll come to the third chapter where Paul is exhorting him to continue in the faith. And that's in verse 14 where he says, But as for you, continue in what you have, heard, what you have learned and firmly believed. And have firmly believed. So um, I remember our series is called Defend and Contend. And Ephraim two weeks ago made a statement that stuck with me, that will stick with me for probably my, the rest of my life. It says, A lot of Christians are living in a war zone like it's a vacation resort. We Christians have to realize that we're actually in a war. And today we're going to be talking about the idea of of times of difficulty in the last days. So Paul in this third chapter writes to Timothy about the times of difficulty that he would experience within the context of the church, within the context of ministry, within within the context of life in the last days. So, why don't you join with me in prayer before we actually read God's word and then we'll go from there. Father, we thank you for the means of grace that we get in terms of community. Just being able to gather together, Lord, on a day where we'd rather be in bed, but uh, we thank you because, Lord, you've given us this avenue where we can uh, be discipled by you, be discipled by each other, be discipled through your word. Um, so, Father, we ask and pray today that, Lord, as we, as we read your word, as we think carefully through the text of First Timothy chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 9, Father, we ask and pray that you would... Um, Just illuminate your word in our hearts, Lord. Um, Help us to think very carefully. Help us to meditate deeply. And Lord, I just pray that today the word just doesn't become something that we mentally acquiesce to. More so, Lord, we ask and pray that it would be um, such that would help us bear fruit. Fruit that would make us useful to you for your glory. Uh, fruit that would make us useful to each other. Um, so we ask and pray that you help us, Lord, even as we go through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn with me to Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 9. Or should I say, get on your iPads and, and click, click, click. Right, okay. I will read from the ESV version. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of of self, lovers of money. They will be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, 
not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying his power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in their mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they would not go very far, they would not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those of those two men. Now, when you look at that list from verse 2 to 5, you think, golly, Lord help us. But the encouragement that I find, even within the context that Paul's writing to Timothy, the encouragement that I find is that when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But while the promise stands true, and it's certain because of who said it, we shouldn't get it twisted that we live in times of moral decadence. We live in perilous times. We live in times that the opposition against the gospel is not just a mere possibility as much as it is a certainty. The truth of the gospel has been and will always be opposed. And in some cases, you have the extreme and some cases are more extreme than the other. But we have to remember that we are at war. The war we face, at times, a lot of people think it's, it's external to the church, which is true. I mean, we would fight against uh, the, the, the laws of the government if they're opposed to the gospel. We'll fight against um, all sorts of external battles that we have within, within, uh, within the world against Christendom. But we also have to remember that when we talk about the war, the war, according to this passage, is actually an internal battle. It's a battle where you have the false prophets who are infiltrating into the church and bringing destructive heresies um, against the people of God. So uh, looking at this first nine verses, um, we're going to divide it into three points. Uh, the first point will come from the first five verses where Paul is writing to Timothy and to us about what will characterize the days that he, and, that he lived in and the, what will characterize the days that we live in as well. Um, so we want to be able to think carefully about the context for our life and ministry. Um, the second point will be verse 6 and 7, which would be the need for spiritual dis discernments. So... Uh, once the church knows the tactics that the false prophets um, are bringing in, where they're bringing their truth, then we will be able to actually know how to better withstand the, 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 their doctrine. And the third point will be in verse 8 and 9, which is basically the encouragement to the church. So as bad as it might get, the first thing I quoted was that Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we have to remember whose church it is. It's not our church, it's Jesus' church, it's Christ's church. Remember who, whose bride it is. The bride of Christ is the church. We are the bride of Christ. So, to our first point, context and character for our life and ministry. What are we to expect in terms of character, in terms of context, and in terms of people in the last days? So look again with me in verse 1. It says, but understand this, or mark this. What are we to mark? What are we to understand? We are to understand that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty or terrible times. So one thing we have to understand is that when Paul makes his statement about difficult days in this letter, you have to think of the fact that the difficult days are brought in by people. People who don't like the truth. People who don't like the gospel. 
So if you look at verse 6, he says, For among them, i.e. the false teachers, are those who creep into households. So the direct context for what he's saying is actually talking about false teachers who are coming into the church to actually bring in destructive heresies. So he says, in the last days, there will be terrible times. There will be times of difficulty. So while, while studying this, this passage, I, I heard of a guy called John Napier of Napier University in Scotland. Uh, John Napier was a math prof- professor. He taught, um, he was the one who invented logarithms. And he uses logarith- logarithmic calculations to apparently figure out when Jesus will come back. Right? And then he wrote a book. The book sold very well until the very day when Jesus was supposed to come back. <laughs> so you can tell that the books are no longer on the shelf. But the Bible tells us that no one knows the day, no one knows the hour in which the Son of Man will return. So as much as we can pontificate as to when Jesus will come back, he's going to come back here, he's going to come back there. We might have clues here and there, but the Bible says that we don't know when he's going to come back. So in light of not knowing when he's going to come back, we still have to, still, we still have to keep on living. We don't, uh, I mean, you look at the book of Thessalonians and you look at people who, um, who were awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They sold the, the, the property, they sold their houses, they, sold, they quit their jobs and they said they were just going to wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not so. We wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet we're still busy. Yet we still have to wage war. So, um, what, is the com- what is the last days then? The last days is from the time that Jesus ascended to heaven till he comes back in bodily return to take his saints home and to also judge those who haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. At this time, I would say that this is a certainty. This would definitely happen. And the gospel demands for us to make preparation for that time. So for those people who haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're in the last days, and you've been in the last days, time is running out. You have to make preparations to actually meet your maker at some point. Tomorrow is not promised. You might go out today and get knocked down by a car, and it's over. You pass into eternity. We are in the last days, and the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after death, straight away the judgment. So if you haven't made preparations for the last day, my advice to you would be to repent of your sins, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he will save you. He promised he will. So, what happens in the last days, dangerous times will come, difficult times will come against the church. Now, think of it this way. The only the illustration I could think about is, 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 is when you think of diseases that are external to the body, let's suppose I get a cut. I can deal with it way before it gets infected, right? I could deal with my cut before it gets infected. But once you get cancer, it's not easily noticeable initially. But what happens is, as time goes on, it's noticeable. And that's what's happening within the context of the local church that Paul is writing to Timothy. It says in the last days you will have these guys come in um, to actually infiltrate into the church. So look, at, look, look with me from verse 2. And let's look at a few things that characterizes the, the, the days that we actually live in. Or the days that we're going to be um, living in. So it says... For or because people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, and abusive. This is what's going to characterize our days is people would love themselves. There's a, there's a guy named Donald Gunthry. He was a New Testament scholar in, in the London Bible College. Rightly, he rightly said that the best way to unpack verse 2 to 5 is if you look at the first two, the first two uh, vices, which is lovers of self and lovers of money, you would actually get an understanding, a better understanding of the rest of the 16 vices there. If you love yourself, 
You're going to love money. You're going to be proud. You're going to be arrogant. You're going to be abusive. Another way to look at it is this. If you take the first vice, lovers of self, and then you go down to verse 4 where it says, the last part where it says, rather than lovers of God, what you would get is like a sandwich. If you put the rest of the 16 in between, you get a very distasteful sandwich. So you have people who love themselves instead, the, instead of them loving God. And you get a very distasteful sandwich. Uh, John Stott categorizes these, three vi- these vices largely under three headings. They are revealed firstly in respect to ourselves as individuals. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, or boastful, which then will lead it, lend itself to being abusive. Because I love myself, I love money. What would happen is, uh, because I, I feel preoccupied with self and, 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 what, and what I have financially, what it will consequently lead, it lend itself to assertion in form of being proud, arrogant, and abusive behaviors, which is unattractive. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God opposes the proud. When the Bible says God opposes the proud, it means that God actively stands against the proud person. And this is what is celebrated in our culture. This is what is celebrated in our churches. In most churches that I gathered on the Lord's on, on, on today, you have them preaching all sorts of stuff that is in contradiction to the Bible. If there was an age where we think that God and Christianity existed for us, it's our age. The end of Christianity is no longer God's glory, is no longer us, is no longer God. The end of Christianity seems to be us nowadays. What can God do for me? When God made man, he made man for his glory. The Westminster Catechism, we ask the question, what is the chief end of man? It would say it's to love God and to glorify him forever. But we've now flipped it around to the point where we now say the chief end of God is to glorify us and to give us what we want. You hear words like, command ye me by the works of my hand. And basically what they do is that they basically put God in their hands and point fingers at him and just say, God, you do what I say you should do. These are evidences of the times that we live in. People no longer have a fear of God. People no longer have a a reverence for his glory. So, I mean... Someone would ask at this moment in time and say that, so does that mean I should hate myself? No. The opposite of self-love is not self-hate. The opposite of self-love is a love for God. The Bible makes it categorically clear that we are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and strength. And then Paul would write in Philippians where he would say, actually in Romans where he says that, you know, we, we should not think of ourselves more higher than we should, but with sober judgment and with due understanding of the way that God has put, put us together. So that's having a sane understanding of who you really are. And to the demise of the church, we have professing believers that have sidelined the gospel, which the rest of Christianity stems from, to other agendas that have nothing to do with the gospel. We've made Christianity about us as as opposed to what Christ has done for us. So lovers of self, lovers of money. Money is not bad. The Bible says it's the love of money that is bad. The love of money that is bad. I mean, I, I have to think very deeply about my own love for money. I mean, I have to think, I have to think of the fact that even within my own church, that sometimes I hold back what belongs to God by way of my offering sometimes. Because I love my own money so much. Because I want to 
And this is not a plug for you guys to give money to the church. But if you're a Christian and you're a member of this church, you should be giving to the work of the gospel in this church. You would entrust God with everything. But the love of money would make you lie. The love of money would make you do unethical things. The love of money would make you sacrifice your children. The love of money would make you do all sorts of stuff that's against the gospel. And if, if you look at this book of, of 2 Timothy, which was written over 1,900 years ago, we see that, that, that things haven't changed. They loved money back then. They still love money now. They'll tell you to sow seeds of faith. The amount of times I've given so much money just because of the greed of my own heart, I gave to God not because I love God, but because of the fact that the, the pastor said to me that, God would give me a hundredfold. And when you look at the context of the verses where God speaks about a hundredfold, it's talking about fruit that comes from a life that's living worthy of the gospel. And they're so able to cleverly twist the scripture in a way where it makes them rich. Pastors driving in phantoms and, and Rolls Royces and not from their own money. They tell you they work very hard. How are you working? Speaking to people and getting them to give you money? But as much as I look at their lives, I have to look at my life as well. I have to look at areas where I'm compromising, areas where I love money so much. So I guess in terms of application about this point, the question is, how am I looking at how do I view money? I remember Ephraim did a, a, a series a little while back on, on time, talents, and treasure. How are we using what God has given to us for the furtherance of his gospel? Since we know the truth. And then after all that, that, that big list from, the first, from, from, from verse 1 and 2, then he says disobedience to parents. And it's easy to think that this is trivial. I work in a school, I'm a, I'm a classroom teacher. And when you look at my kids, and when I look at my kids and I look at how disobedient they are or how rebellious they could be sometimes, it's usually because of the fact that they have no parental figure at home. There's no respect in their homes. As a consequence, they rebel against authority, not just in, not just in the school context, but in context of society. And... The woes we see in society is symptomatic of the woes that happen at home. So, um, and, and what happens is that most of these symptoms are carried on into adulthood. And what happens is, because of this case, you have a lot of grown men and grown women who are still kids that have been untrained. Because the gospel hasn't affected their lives. Then it goes on to ungrateful. How many of you sometimes when you pray find it difficult to be thankful? I find it sometimes to be difficult to be thankful because of the fact that I don't think deep enough. My mom used to say that if you can't think deeply, you can't give thanks adequately. And, and three weeks ago we went, I went to prayer meeting and I appreciated the fact that Patrick said we need to just take time not to ask God for anything, but just to give thanks. Let's just take time to give thanks. And I think that us being ungrateful would usually stem from the fact that we love ourselves, we feel sorry for ourselves, we feel like we have this sense of entitlement. We feel like, okay, God owes us. And as soon as God does something for us, it's, we don't even turn back to say thank you. I'm reminded of like the story in the gospel where you had uh, nine lepers that were healed and only one went back to say thank you. And I think that's, we, we are the nine sometimes who, who don't go back to say thank you to Jesus. And this is a mark of the false prophets. They're not thankful. They're proud, they're arrogant, they're not thankful because they think the world revolves around them. 
And sometimes we could also fall into that trap where we think that the world revolves around us. We've let society and the world out there to actually dictate to us how we should actually view things. But here's one thing to be thankful for. For those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the fact that you were once dead in your sins and trespasses is enough to be thankful. The fact that God reached down from heaven of his own initiation to actually save you is something to be thankful for. The fact that you're saved and you're going towards heaven is something to be thankful for. You can spend so much time just giving thanks for what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.3 says that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. If you're a Christian, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And when you don't think about those things, you can't be thankful. Your heart becomes, yeah, you can't be thankful. Okay, right. And it goes on to say in verse 2, at the end of the verse, it says, they're unholy, they're heartless. In other words, they're cold, they're callous, they don't love God. They're unappeasable. I mean, the question I ask myself is, if God has forgiven me of all my sins, how on earth would I not forgive someone else who's, who, who has offended me? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. The wrath that I deserve, Jesus took him. And then I have the right to now say that I'm not going to be at peace. I'm not going to be consolable. They're slanderous. They're without control, without self-control. Society is get all you can and can all you get. We have an addictive, over, we, we are an, an addictive and overcompulsive people. What Jesus said to us was to practice self-denial. Jesus says in Luke 9.23, if you're going to come after me, you have, to, you, have to pick up your, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and then come after me. But the mantra of the culture, the mantra of even churches is, <laughs> let's get all we can. God wants you rich healthy, happy, wealthy. That's the mantra of the church. So there's no need to practice self-denial. While you're here on earth, get all you can. But the Bible tells us that that is a sign of people who don't love God. That's a sign of the unregenerate. They don't practice self-denial. It's not about what will make you happy. Uh, the psychologist would say, what will make me happy? What will make me feel fulfilled? And it's all about feelings, feelings, feelings. We respond to the impulse of how we feel more than we actually respond to the impulse of the truth of God's word. And the love for self, in a sense, you can tell it actually breeds all sorts of sins. And it goes on to say that they'll be brutal not loving good. Verse 4 says they will be treacherous, which is unfaithful. They will be reckless. They will be swollen with conceit. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of, lovers of God. So remember, it started with love of self, love of money. Then it comes to the end. It says they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In most professing Christians, um, or to most professing Christians, God is like a genie in the bottle. So I ignore God until I want something. How many of you have been there? I've been there. As a matter of fact, I did it this week. <laughs> in other words, what they're saying is that God is the best way that I, to get what I want even though what I really want is not God. And that's the, that's the very opposite of biblical Christianity. Our goal is not what we want from God. Our goal is God himself. 
Our goal is God's glory. It's not our glory. And when we live in a world where, where it's, it's just totally opposite to, to, to what the Bible teaches, it's easy to get, um, to get that kind of mindset. It's, it's very easy. And that's what's happening in most churches today. So in most churches today, you have more people going to churches that don't preach the gospel properly than you do coming to faithful churches. These are our cousins, these are our, our uncles, our aunts, our friends, people we love. They're not in faithful churches because of the fact that they love themselves so much. And the same thing with us as well. Let's not think that because of the fact that we don't go to those churches that we're okay. We have to search our own hearts as well and actually see that we actually have residues of these various sins that are being listed in verse 2 to 5. And then look at what follows in verse 5. This is, the most, this, is, this is a clincher for me. It says, these guys have an appearance of godliness, but yet they deny its, his, its power. I call that Puff Daddy Christianity. The reason why I call it Puff Daddy Christianity is not because I hate Puff Daddy, but it's because Puff Daddy will be the kind of guy who will receive an award and say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for giving me this award after I've written songs that actually defame him. Now, I say that now with the knowledge that I believe that most of us here are Christians. But I would ask the question, how many of us think that because we come to church that me and God are cool? I'm cool with God because I come to church, you know, I play drums, I, not you, Will. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do what I have to do. You know, I, I come in and I'm, I'm okay with God because of the fact that I do all these things. The Bible makes it clear again that salvation is not by works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith, in, through faith alone in Christ alone. That's what salvation is. Salvation is not predicated on what I do or what I don't do. Salvation is predicated on what, is, what has been done for me, what Jesus Christ has done for me. And the response to that is repentance and faith. I will make that very clear. I would, not give an, I would not be ashamed to tell you that the gospel is repentance and faith. It's not what you do. It's not having a form of godliness. Coming to church does not save you. You come to church because you are saved. That's the reason why you should come anyway. You know, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. We are being reminded with those listening, verse 2 to 5, that um, we live in a very hostile world. We are in a hostile ground. Um, it's war. It's internal. And we have to defend and contend um, for true godliness as opposed to a quasi one. One that seems like, a true, like, like godliness but really isn't godliness. And then he goes on to say that you are to avoid these people. So he's saying, Timothy, there has to be an ounce of distinction in your Christianity as opposed to the ones of the false prophets. You're faithfully preaching the gospel. That's your ounce of distinction. So when he says avoid such people, I, I doubt if he's saying um, avoid sinners. The only way you can avoid sinners is to die. You know, apart from a few guys, few of you over here who are perfect, and you guys are a dying breed. So on to the second point. Be aware of the tactics and practice and the deception of the false teachers. So look with me in verse 6. It says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Now, it almost sounds like he's making a very derisive and divisive statement against women. 
I don't think he is, and I'll explain why in a second. If you look at the beginning of the book, when Paul wrote, when he started the letter, he wrote about the faith that started in his grandmom and then went on to his mom and then passed on to him. So women have a very important role in the discipleship of the children. So he's saying to Timothy that the very same faith that you possess is the same faith that came from your grandmom and then to your mom and then to you. But what is he doing? He's doing two things. First of all, he's talking about the tactics of the false teachers and what they were doing back in the days that they were, they were, they were literally going into the homes of middle class and upper class women in the Greco-Roman culture who had received the gospel from the likes of Paul and Timothy and, and Titus. And these preachers, these false preachers, will go into their homes and tickle their vulnerable ears. And the interesting thing about this is that this is how the gospel actually spread originally. The gospel actually spread through home groups that were opened up by women whose husbands had gone away on business trips. So the false teachers now said, okay, they're doing it, so we're going to do it, but we're going to do it with a different intention and a different agenda. And that's what they were doing. So they were, they, were pop, they, 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 were, they were poisoning the gospel, the true gospel, with a polluted gospel. So that's the first thing they were doing. So the second thing that Paul was doing when he actually said, made the statement in 6 and 7, he's saying, look at the leverage that the false prophets try to hook into. And there's four of them. So the lack of spiritual discernment, which is basically saying, if you look in verse 6 again, he goes, he that, that, he, that they will go in and capture weak-willed minds that haven't been spiritually discerning by biblical, by biblical truths. And consequently, what will happen is that if your mind is not, is not conditioned by biblical truths, it makes you an easy target for false, for false teachers. Many of us have been on the other side of the spectrum, especially coming from an African background where, you know, we had the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it type theology. We came from all that. And because of the fact that we didn't read our Bibles for ourselves, what happens is that we became very easy targets for, for 100-fold, 50-fold, 200-fold, and we got nothing for it. I'm still poor. <laughs> Amen. If you plead biblical ignorance, then you are an easy target and a viable candidate for false doctrine. So we can't, we can't say we don't know. The Bible has given us faithful preachers. The Bible has given us faithful churches. And more importantly, the Bible has given, sorry, God has given us his word. He's given us his word to actually expose uh, false doctrine. We need to be conditioned by it if we're truly Christians. I had a conversation with a friend who I thought was into one of those um, arenas, like the name it, claim it, churches. Um, so I played uh, Shai's new song, The False Teachers One. And I says, what do you think? She goes, well, if you're reading your Bible, you wouldn't have a problem with what, he, with what he's saying. And I was like, whoa, really? She goes, yeah. I goes, okay, praise God. If you're reading your Bible, you would know what the Bible says about the things that the false teachers twist. So that's the first leverage. They, they, they go and sp they, 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 they target weak-willed women. Um, the second one is uh, unstable and easily led. In verse 6 again, it goes, These women are led astray by various passion. So they're not led by principles that emanate from the truth of, God's, of God, but by feelings and emotions. Feelings, feelings, feelings. They're very pragmatic in their approach to practical life-altering issues. Oh, God said to me that you, you to give me. Um, and I don't mean to keep on going on against, uh, well, maybe I do mean to go against them, but people who actually take money of people and fleece the flock is very infuriating to me. It's very, it's just, it's just bad. 
And what even hurts the most is that the same Lord and Savior that I call, the, the Jesus who I call my own Lord and Savior, is the same one they, 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 they actually say is their Lord and Savior. And what happens is that I'm being painted with the same brush. So I go out and I say to an unbeliever, I'm a Christian, and they go out and they do the same thing. I'm being painted with the same brush. And God's glory is being diminished. So they're not led by principles that emanate from the truth of God's word. They're led by how they feel. You can't live on how you feel. You can't live by just based on, I mean, someone said that feelings are good indicators, but they're never good leaders. You can't say you don't feel like going to work, because if you don't go to work, you don't get paid. And you don't eat. And the Bible says if you don't work, you don't, you don't eat. And you become a burden to the church. A third way in which these false teachers use as a leverage is, again, in verse 6, these are people who are burdened with sins. They're burdened with sins in the sense that I can't alleviate my guilt. And you not being able to alleviate your guilt is because of the fact that you have, and if you say you're a Christian and you're guilty, based on a certain sin or whatever, a besetting sin, I understand that. But the gospel tells us that what Christ done for us on the cross is adequate enough and God's grace provides the adequacy to stay away from sin. God's grace gives us the power to live a life that's worthy of, worthy of the gospel. And for some people, it's, it's a slower pace than others, and that's okay. But we're running this together. God has given us the means of grace of his community, of, of his church, to help us grow. Christianity is not a solo sport. You can't say, you know, it's just me and God. God's means of grace, the primary means of grace that God has given to his people is the church. Okay, we have the word, we have prayer, we have, uh, I guess, fellowship. But the means of grace that God has given to us is the local church. We help each other grow. We disciple each other. We talk about our problems to each other. We confess our sins to one another. You can't, you can't run on your own. And because of the fact that these women are burdened with sins, The, the, the false prophet uses that as a leverage to actually take advantage of the fact that, that they don't understand um, what the gospel is. The fourth way. Read with me in verse 7. They're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So they're not like the Berean Christians. The Berean Christians were learning and they said to Paul, you know what, Paul, what you said we readily accept. Thank you so much, Paul. But hold on a second, Paul. We have to go away and search the scriptures to see if these things are true. And Paul was like, wow. He commended them for the fact that they were able to go back and actually find out if those things were true. And we as a church, we need to be a church that critiques healthily. When I say critique healthily, I don't mean I come with a presupposition of what I think is true and I'm waiting for you to drop the ball. Oh, you messed up again. Oh, you missed the whole thing on, 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 on tithes and offering or whatever the case, or whatever the subject may be. Critiquing doesn't mean that you have a closed mind. It doesn't mean you have a closed and, and suspicious attitude, but it's an attitude that receives with an open heart and a desire to affirm what is true. So you're not trying to catch people out. The intention is different because you're humble to want to hear truth and want to receive truth, but you also have a critical mind to actually think through the truth that you've heard. 
you want to go home and actually see if those things that are written, things that I've said, whether they, they be true or whether they be a lie. You don't just, and, and that's what happens. I mean, I used to, the church I used to go to, I mean, I used to, when I came out of it, I, I said to myself, I was an intelligent fool. I was a fool because I would easily lap up what the pastor was saying and I'll feel good for the moment and when I come out of church, that's it. I'm done. I don't go back to look at it. Next Sunday, I do my religious act again. And some would say, you know, I don't have time to read. I don't have time to pray. I don't even have time to go to church. But I will submit to you today that the premium that you place on the value of your soul will determine how you grow as a Christian and consequently could possibly determine your fate if you think you're a Christian. I'll say that again. The premium that you place on the value of your soul would determine how you grow as a Christian. Or, consequently, if you think you're, you're a Christian, it would determine your eternal fate. So the question is, how spiritually healthy do you want to get? Do we go to community groups? Do we go to prayer meeting? Those are means of grace that God has provided for growth. Those are means of grace that God has provided for discipleship. I can understand that some people can't go. I can understand that. But for those who can go and those who can avail themselves to those resources and those means of grace that God has provided for us, are you availing yourself to it? We want to be useful for God. We want to grow. We want to be faithful. We want to, be, uh, we want to give God glory in all that we do. And this is the world that we have to face constantly. Reminding ourselves of truth through God's word. How many of you have seen Fear Factor? Fear Factor? Okay. Fear Factor is a program where people will do the most, the craziest of things to get a million, a million dollars. They will eat worms, they will eat kidneys, raw kidneys. They will do all sorts of nastiness to get a million, to get a million pounds. I guess if you think of it in context of your own soul, you would die and go to hell if you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't grow as you should if you don't avail yourself to the means of grace that God has provided. If you think of it in that way, maybe we would do a lot more. I mean, how tangible is the Christian faith to you? I ask myself the question every single time I wake up. How tangible is the Christian faith to me? How real is it to me? Am I just playing church? Am I just playing games? Five more minutes of sleep. sleep. It turns into 15 minutes. I click on the snooze button. Before you know it, the day is gone. I don't pray. I give God the, the, the residues, the leftover of my day. Um... But if I want to grow, if I really want to grow, uh, I would avail myself to the means of grace that God has provided. So the third point, which is the encouragement to the church. Look, look, look with me at verse 8 and 9. It says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For the folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So you have these two characters, Janus and Jambres. Janus and Jambres um, re recorded in the book of Exodus, but their names were not mentioned. Um, they were the two magicians who, when Moses, when Aaron threw his rod down and he's turned into a snake, they threw their rod down as well to replicate what Aaron did. So Pharaoh was like, okay, you know, um, Moses, big deal, first sign. Big deal. I can get my magicians to do the same thing too. So what happened is that they came in and did the same thing. They threw the rod on, on, on the ground. But the truth of God prevailed in the sense that Aaron's rod or Aaron's snake actually swallowed Genesis and Jambres' snake as well. The same with that, uh, the, the same is alluded to in this passage. That their folly will be plain to all as, was, as those two men. So they were revealed as a fraud because God's word in a sense prevailed. God's truth prevailed over Janus and Jambres'. 
So what Paul is saying to Timothy here, I mean, we've heard a lot of negative things. We've heard, man, like you have this love of self, you have this love of money, you have this boastful, you have this conceit, you have, you have this, all these vices. Paul's saying that, okay, Timothy, this might be real, this might happen, but remember whose church is it. Remember, it's God's church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So no matter how bad it gets, Christ's church will prevail. And when you look at the book of Revelation, the end of Revelation is basically saying, we win. As terrible as things get, we win. Because God is faithful. We're not the ones who's faithful. God is the one who's faithful. We win. So in conclusion, like I said, it's easy to look at the 18 vices. And the first thing I think to myself is, I'm going to try and not be like those guys. That's not what the answer is. Christianity is not like a New Year's resolution where you say, I'm going to stop stealing, I'm going to stop killing, I'm going to stop doing all this. I'm going to no, Christianity is you, again, I'll repeat again, Christianity is you repenting from your sins and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And for the Christian who's struggling with these things, we have the means of grace to actually just say, you know what, let's grow together. Grab another Christian and read together. Galatians says that having begun in the spirit, you're not being made perfect by the flesh. You don't try to, 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 to do Christianity. You either are a Christian or you're not a Christian. So guys, be encouraged in that. Um, God himself is the one who wants to work in us to willing to do of what to willing to do of that which pleases him. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would uh, write your truths on our heart. So that we will live lives that's worthy of the gospel. So that we will be able to detect error when there's error. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.